0: Oftentimes enlightening and informative And above all else, deeply human Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take My guests are David Shields, Rachel Kempf, and Nick Toady David Shields is no stranger to this podcast He's an American writer and filmmaker He uses collage to destabilize genre He's the author of 22 books, including Reality Hunger And the thing about life is that one day, you'll be dead David wrote a book the very last interview, which Rachel and Nick used as the inspiration for a Christmas movie with the same title. It's a great film, and we had a great discussion about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you David, Rachel, and Nick. David, Rachel, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks Scott. Scott. Thank you.
1: What is this, Got Like our sixth time chatting. We're like going to oh pour gosh. each other to death.
0: No, it's you're. hey, you're a friend of the show and, and lots of people uh, really enjoy when you come back on. So it's a, get a boost in the downloads, my friend.
1: There so. you go. Thank you.
0: So you, David, you wrote a book, the very last interview and, uh, and Nick and Rachel made a film of it. And is it fair to say that the, the book is sort of, you've done so many interviews and you just kind of it's almost a stream of consciousness experience of like all these interview questions being thrown at you at once and you kind of collating these things and cataloging all these dialogical experiences you've had. And then somebody made a film of it. I mean, this is so intriguing. Like, how does this, I'm interested, how does the book, why write this book and why make this film? And you guys, you all can jump in in whatever way you want to do that.
1: I mean, those are great questions. Let me, I mean, I would sort of rewind a little bit and argue for considerably greater intentionality on the book's part, in the sense that, <clears throat> you know, I began, this project began two or three years ago. I was, you know, I'm always looking for a new project, you know, and so I had this idea, I'm gonna have to look up every interview question I've ever been asked, you know, and I'm, you know, whatever, I'm 64, I first published a book at age 28, 1984. I've been interviewed, you know, countless times on print, TV, radio, podcast, you know, and I just thought, I don't know, just for the hell of it, I'm going to look up every interview I've ever done. And then I've been sometimes a journalist, I've done interviews with with people. And so I looked up those as well. I don't know, just sort of some odd adventure. I don't know, just like at one point, I wrote an essay about every bad review I've ever gotten. You know, it's the same impulse. Let me look up every interview I've ever done. Perhaps there is something there. I'm such a curator, a collator. I'm more of an editor than I am a writer. You know, I don't generate much of my own stuff. I'm more of a collagist. I'm interested in found material and then the radical remix of that found material. So this, so I sort of gathered all these interviews and then Rather quickly, I could feel how utterly bored I I was by all of my answers, by my entrenched positions, all all these questions, fiction, nonfiction, collage, remix, appropriation, stuttering, Jewishness, uh, whatever. All these topics, I sort of have my little sort of worked out talking points. And I was sort of bored by my talking points. But... I had this idea, how about if I, I look for every question mark in this huge document of hundreds, if not thousands of pages? So I found 2,700 questions asked over 35 years. And so then began this work of, of remixing and, and hugely rewriting and recontextualizing and decontextualizing the questions. So those, 20, so those 2,700 questions became, I think, sort of 1,700 questions. And then I hugely rewrote them. And made up entirely new ones and then of course i pushed them into thematic silos like childhood or speech or education or coaching or parenthood or suicide and then of course the challenge was to make every chapter have a real momentum and then from chapter to chapter having real momentum as it is with every every book of mine you know as i like to say collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled, that it's really easy to make a collage that's just a bunch of things thrown at the wall. But to make a work like this have some momentum was extremely challenging.
0: And everything we know, by the way, just on a random note, like I think you think of the Torah, everything we know about contemporary biblical studies leads us to believe that the Torah was a collage artist. That that There was all these traditions floating around the ancient Near East. And I mean, if you're not the kind of, I mean, if you're impious enough to think that, look, Moses didn't write the whole thing. There's, you know, there's all these sources floating. What? around.
1: I'm and, quitting and, this podcast. <laughs> I am out. God damn it.
0: So, I mean, so, I mean, it's interesting because one of the foundational documents of, of Western culture, right. That many people hold sacred and dear is the product of collage art. Totally. And, you're, really? and you're in that tradition.
1: Even,
2: that's a you know really
1: the brilliant the, point the Bible
2: is the same way you know it's a it's a it's a greatest hits album you know of all of these other apocryphal books like these are the ones that what was it the Council of Nicaea said these are the ones that go into the official book and the rest of them you know they get to be the footnotes
1: and that that's something I talk about extensively in reality hunger and various essays how the Bible itself Old Testament and New Testament, are these huge palimpsests and re-readings? These readings and re-readings and decontextualizations and layer after layer. And you know, Scott is in has been a pastor. He is hugely immersed in religious traditions in ways I'm not. And um, you know that the Bible, every you know practically every book of the Bible has is a kind of, as you're saying, Scott. Indeed, you know, a series of readings and misreadings. And, and mistranslations, and it's, you know, the whole demonation, demonization of Jews, in a way, is based on a misreading of who Jews are, that Jews have horns, is really just a misreading of a word that describes Jews, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, so back to what really matters, my work, which is that, um, you know, so anyway, so I, I gathered all these quotes, or all these um, questions, and then then the chicks, you know, I just work draft after draft. It's just like, well, it's kind of interesting, but it's also fundamentally boring. And then the big thing I added, and I don't know if it was a function of my own life, of getting older, getting divorced, pandemic, uh, the end of another relationship. But I sort of added, I said, well, it, it needs some plot, even though I'm not a fiction writer. Typically, I, I do. It needs some momentum pulling us through. And so, there I sort of added an increasingly loud suicide thread in the book. That there's the book goes basically takes some version of me from childhood, being born in LA to being raised in San Francisco, blah, 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 and then through to, you know, what would you call it, late middle age. And so, but there's this kind of thread or threat of suicide that emerges in the book that I would, you know, hope is, you know, is 95% fictional. It's not a real issue in my life, but I could play with it enough. It was an issue with my father who was always, always threatening suicide in his manic depression. So I'm familiar with the ideation of suicide. So that's the book is,
0: um, it's interesting because you, you follow up suicide with comedy and I, I don't know, like is, can you only be comic after you're tragic? Right. In the sense of it, it, it's only when you can look at death in the face and maybe even wanting to take your own life that you can laugh. Is that is that part of the message you're you're putting out there?
1: I think that's right. I mean, that we were talking, Rachel and Nick and I yesterday on a far superior podcast, Michael's p- podcast, and that we were talking about.
0: <laughs> I would say that about Michael's podcast, too.
1: We were talking about film beats and film structure and, you know. I'm, 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 you know, I'm sort of pulling on Nick and Rachel's arm to send me their film structure documents. And I have sort of mine. And, the, you know, the, the one of the big, big beats in most sort of film structures is, you know, the big gloom is sort of act four, you know, where everything goes to shit. And that, basically, you know, typically the a tertiary character dies in act four, there's a literal or figurative death. And then, to the degree the film is redemptive or quasi-redemptive, there's a little bit of an uptick at the end. So I was—I must admit I was aware of, of those film beats, That the suicide in which some character, some character based on me, in the almost, I think it's the anti-penultimate, the next to next to next to last chapter, I flirt with suicide and then I say, no, it's too boring, too melodramatic, too predictable. And then I think we go to, Comedy, and then we go to next. Like, okay, David, what's next in your life? Um, I was very aware of that big gloom being the suicide, and then it comes up a bit, a little at the end, to give the reader something to hold on to. And I think exactly something like that happens in the film where Rachel compressed this 110-page book into a 22-page script, and exactly so, at the end of the film, we've got you know just a little glimmer without you know, that, that delicate space, you want a little hope, but not to make it cheesy You know, thing of Picasso's I always love, you know, a great painting comes together just barely, you know, you want the ending to feel a little redemptive, but in no way do you, you, you want it to feel falsely sentimental. I'm hoping the book and film accomplish something yes, like sir, that.
0: I, I'm fascinated because Nick, Rachel, what were you thinking? Casting wise, because I, I full disclosure, I know David a little bit like, on and off the podcast. I mean, we've become friends over the years, and so it was a fascinating casting choice because I I didn't see David like I, it was just very interesting for me. Like it, it, the guy like didn't feel like Shields to me, but but it was compelling. I mean, his his performance was compelling, and then also I found myself, and I don't know if this is intentional. I found myself wanting to choke the interviewer at points like like i i i just thought the questions were at times um so frustrating and and the staccato kind of artistic way you laid them out was like uh it, it, it the film created a lot of emotional reaction in me i mean i was it makes sure. people some people said it, it makes them squirm which is high praise i think for a
1: 29 minute yeah.
0: Movie. Yeah, I think it made me, like, I felt less squirming and more frustration, but not frustration with the art form. Like, and, and in fact, I thought it was a great film. I noticed personal frustration. Like, I, I I felt like I was in the room. Is that how you cast it? I mean, were you are trying to get people to feel like they were in the room during the conversation? Because that's how I felt.
2: I think that that's sort of the, I mean, it, it, to me, it's different from casting. We can talk about the actors as well. But uh, that question is... You know, it was it was kind of and I think David has a book about this, although it's one that I haven't read, but it's almost like making the movie feel like a found document. You know, it's uh, like we sort of talked with the the script is very vague, but I, I worked with the actors a lot. And we kind of talked about, you know, why are these people doing this interview? Like, why is this woman, you know, what's motivating her to be interviewing David Shields at this moment in her life? And we sort of ran through various possibilities. Like, is she a journalist? Does she work for a news station? Um, is she an independent filmmaker? I, I think what we sort of ambiguously landed on was maybe maybe she turned 30 and realized she didn't like the path she was on in her life and you know decided she wanted to try and be a documentary filmmaker. And maybe this is the first kind of, big sit-down interview she's done and she's really over-prepared for it. And and just kind of bringing some of that... Is she,
1: is she attracted to Shields?
2: Uh, I don't know. You, uh, maybe I that's that, a question for the writer.
1: I think that's interesting. Or, or maybe Rachel would be good on that just because she has so many roles. She's therapist, um, mean mom, uh, dominatrix, seductress, journalist. I feel like she goes through about... Seven gear changes. I mean, the Rachel could speak to that. I think I would love to hear Rachel's. I mean, it's a brilliant performance by Ashley, whereby she, I mean, sometimes she just is reading in this row, w- way through the lines, like boom, 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 boom. And then she, almost you can almost hear her change gears, where then suddenly she's like sort of purringly seductive for a few seconds, and then she's out of that phase. Like, I don't know. It's a remarkable performance, but I don't know if you were. I'd love to hear Rachel's take on Ashley's gear changes. How many of those are Ashley's or how many of those are written into the script? I mean, obviously some of both.
3: Um, well, so for, in terms of like, is she attracted to him? I don't know that she's necessarily, I mean, there's a, there's a lens through which you can read this as like the first act of a, like of a romance, but I I didn't see her necessarily from the, get-go as being attracted to him so much as like very nervous by the prospect of interviewing him I think she like very much loves his writing and is very excited about this interview and is very over-prepared and she's really gonna like try really hard to get it right and is doing the thing where by virtue of trying so so hard to get it exactly right she just absolutely does a the worst possible like self-sabotaging job that she could. Um, But also comes up with something I think much more interesting than just sort of like the standard um quest- interview questions would yield. Um, and in terms of like those beats, like what the various sort of iterations that she goes through like personality wise, I didn't really think of it in terms of, Um, I mean, anytime you're like amassing one character from like, However, many interviewers voices um, that that um, David was pulling from, um, I think you're going to get uh, a a very like multifaceted personality. Um, I didn't really think of it as here. She's playing this role and here she's playing this role. I thought of it more in terms of like here her character. Motivation is to like provoke him into saying something. Here, her character motivation is to punish him for not saying anything. Here, you know, she's it was just sort of in a very screenwritery way. What are the various like if her goal throughout the thing is to get him to talk more or less? Um, what are the various tools that she has and what are the sort of escalating tactics she can take to achieve that goal? Um, so I, 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 yeah, I didn't really think of it in terms of like different, you know, is she therapist? Is she, you know, dominatrix, you know, is she, you know, lover, whatever. Um, so much as like, what's, what's the tactic she's taking to try to accomplish her goal?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting as you describe that, because I think generally when I see someone failing and struggling, my general um, Response is compassion. Uh, on my good days, at least. I mean, I, I hope you know not uh, not that I have that many good days, but but I found myself I I couldn't find compassion for her. Like I I it, 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 but but she was engaging me as a character. I mean, like I was my I, w- I was drawn to her, and yet I didn't have compassion in her nervousness.
2: That uh, maybe I. Did. I think this might say more about you, Scott, than it says about her character. Um, I I almost want to I want to interrogate that because I I don't think that I don't I definitely don't feel the same way. Um, But I also know that for myself and in the way that I worked with the actors, it was always I was always very and this was probably really frustrating for them. But I was very, very reluctant to give answers to questions that they had about their characters where they'd say like, Oh, well, why does she say this? Or, Oh, why does he react in this silent way here? And I would always say, you know, Oh, I don't know. What do you think? And then they would say something. And I'd say, Oh, that's interesting. Maybe there is some of that. Let's try something like that. And, but it was always just kind of like, I'm not going to give any straight answers. Cause I don't know any of the answers. I don't know. I'm, I'm just as confused as anybody going through this process all I know for sure is that his character can't say anything and her character can't shut up. The answer, the, the question of why, I don't know the answer to that. Well, a
0: minute eight, I mean, I, I feel, feel like you kind of, into that. you kind of unveil it. I mean, there's this line where she says uh, there, there's this thread in your work about the, something about the art, the, the the fragile nature of human communication and this kind of, and it it seems like there's a blockage going on, Right. Which is so well done, and 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 the actor with his sort of, you know, having to convey the blockage without speaking is amazing. Uh, and I found, and this is full disclosure, like I this was, I had a very emotional reaction to the film. I mean, I and also you can be honest, Scott. It sounds like if you struggle with the film, that's okay too. Like, no, I love the I love the, I wanted to jump into the film and defend my friend.
1: That's what I feel too, is you and I've become pretty good friends over the last
0: year. Yeah, and I, I and wanted to say you misunderstood him. Like this is not, you know, he like he I, I wanted to make space for for David's character to be able to speak. Like I wanted to car I just wanted to jump in front of
1: the speeding train, yeah.
0: The speeding train like 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 you know, what was that great movie um where Clint Eastwood played the um, secret service agent with the JFK. I wanted to jump in front of the bullet and say, he needs to speak. And and, and But this is, I, I think what's powerful about the film, right? Is that that's so much of human life. People wind up not speaking for decades in marriages, in business relationships, in political arrangements. And this is so much, uh, and you can't do anything about it. Like, like this film is like, is the nature of human communication. the the breakthrough is the exception, right? Like not the norm.
1: Right. I mean, that's really powerful. I mean, a few friends of mine, like a friend of mine who's a writer, just watched it over the last couple of days. And she had an interesting take on it, which struck me. I don't really agree with it, but she thought casting a woman, excuse me, as the interviewer, and that she found that the questions that she asked are sort of, she called them either she called the question sort of clueless or tone deaf, like she really doesn't get him. And so that she felt like in 2020 to have a female interviewer asking these supposedly sort of clueless questions that she found the film sort of subtly misogynistic, which I just don't, don't get that at all. I just that like, she said, it. it she, she says, you have to recast it with a man. <laughs> it's like, what? You know, like, I just think it was a really smart choice early on, on Nick and Rachel's part to make it a woman who's the interviewer. And that somehow my friend Stacy thought it was sort of, I don't know, such an unusual reading of it, which I didn't. It kind of goes to some of Scott's questions, which is like, there's something, I mean, it's part of it, our whole conception. Part of it is the conception of the book is rather, there's something Self-punishing about the book and there's something self-punishing about the movie and then having a woman and a man it it doubles down on that punishment. I mean
0: don't you think, if you, think- were, if, if you were gay, that would be different like if you were a gay guy um, having a male, but like part of so much of your work is the drama of relationship and right. so in some sense you you almost had to have a female interviewer. Right. Uh, especially because of the stutter issues you've worked through, the kind of um, there's just something that I I, I agree that I don't think you could have cast that in your story with a male interviewer. It just wouldn't have worked. I mean, it wouldn't have been. It's a different movie, but um, Rachel, did you want to jump in? You seem yeah, like you wanted.
3: I I do. So yeah, that reaction. Well, there was part of me that kind of half expected that as a reaction, but I really strongly feel like it had to be. I was actually, I think maybe, I'm misremembering this, Nick, but I want to say that I was the one that was like, Oh, it's gotta be a woman and she's gotta be younger than him.
0: I think um, that's right.
3: But it was um,
0: right. The casting was right. I mean, the casting felt right. I mean, it it, it was, she was compelling it, 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 again. Like I it, emotionally I'm sitting there. Yeah. She got a reaction out of me.
3: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Well, and here was my feeling of like, uh, people. I I wouldn't be surprised if some people read it as subtly misogynistic. And but I don't think it is, and I'll explain what I think that the, the genesis of that reading is, and why, and then also defend why I'm like no, I didn't find it misogynistic as a choice. Um, I I really love movies with unlikable women. I think that it's my favorite thing, and I actually think it's a really progressive thing. I think that because there's this idea right now, I feel like in culture of like, well, you've got to make sure that women are represented well and that they're like strong and not like, and it's like, it's a, it's a person just treat it. Just treat us like, people. and, and, and like, the minute you can, do that, the minute yeah. you, do it's that,
0: so, you it's so, it's so condescending, my God, yes. you dehumanize somebody. You yeah. dehumanize. Somebody. Yeah, um,
3: definitely. Well, and it's just this like, is,
0: this, is, this is the Hegelian truth, right? Everything is in contradiction, right? All mm-hmm. truth is in contradiction and tension. And so, if there's something if we if we if if you do art without contradiction, you've basically flattened over reality because we're all contradictions, right? Like every every gender, every race, every person, every subject, it's all contradiction.
3: Yeah, well, and here's the other thing too. So, two two things for that. So, first of all, well, several things. So, first of all, any character shouldn't be a stand-in for their gender, like, you know, like you can have tone-deaf women the same way that you can have tone-deaf men. And secondly, I feel like it's just, I don't know, like I, the, the the idea, I really have a lot of empathy for people who are unlikable. I find unlikable people more un- empathetic than likable people, and that probably speaks to something about me. But anybody who's just being completely self-destruct, like people who are at their most self-destructive and at their most sort of like oh, why are you doing this why are you why are you making this toned up thing i have like complete as, 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 at least fictional characters i have like nothing but like love and empathy for them um, just because those why do you say need okay? empathy do you, like I know. Do
0: you not know do you not know people? In no, i I or? do.
3: It's just harder when you have to interact with a person that makes those choices. like so what do you, you what know do you do? when you' are just a, when you're just viewing them and you're like, oh, like you're you're broken like and and I'm broken, but when you when you interact with the person and they're just constantly self- sabotaging and constantly lashing out in these sort of fearful. Ways they're they're trying to connect with you in ways that are like a little bit attacking you, and you're like, I know you don't mean that, but it still hurts. Like it's it's just your own ego gets wrapped up in it. When when it's like a work of fiction, it's much easier to just sort of take it. Do, do, you, at do you have value, a
0: line where you quit? Like, I mean, how do you know when to quit on the person that you are attracted to because of their pain, and yet you, you know they're a problem? I mean, do you like? <laughs> <laughs>
3: you're, you're talking to an extremely codependent person. So, uh, I, I think there is not a, a great line for me, but I am working on establishing, on establishing one.
2: Yeah. And uh, I can speak to that. some also like I, I, I have a, one friend in particular who I kind of constantly have to, um, well, when I'm, when I'm in close communication with him, I have to constantly negotiate those lines. He's a friend of mine who's a brilliant filmmaker, but who also has attempted suicide multiple times. He has severe uh, anxiety and depression issues. Um, He has borderline personality disorder and um, you know, he's been institutionalized multiple times and he's, he's somebody that I, I have to remain constantly vigilant about those facts, especially the borderline personality Uh, disorder fact
0: why why don't you cut him off why don't you just kind of like i mean because it seems like you're a good person and you're probably bringing lots of light and love into the world in other areas why don't you just cut that guy off like what keeps you in the game
2: well i mean for me part of it is that i have seen everybody else in his life cut him off and also from the beginning of our relationship i've maintained pretty firm boundaries with him Uh, And he's respected those boundaries for whatever reason we've been able to make it work. And, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty dedicated to, I don't want to be another person that has uh, failed at maintaining a relationship with this person because I, I mean, part of it is selfish because I genuinely think that he's a brilliant artist and I love the work that he makes. And so part of it is me getting to have this close proximity to somebody that I think is really, really brilliant and uh, and recognizing that there are going to be difficulties that come with that. So if he
0: was a hot dog vendor, it probably would not work. Probably not. Yeah. How did you guys, so, I mean, I'm sorry, we're jumping all around here, but I, I, I'm thinking like you and Shields. So how do you, uh, like, at what point do you decide to make a film about shields. And, and then why don't you cast shields? That's the amazing thing. Like, I think you, you could have casted shields in the main role. Like you could have planned, like the first thing I thought was there's hair. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I'm watching the film, like it took me a few minutes to get over the hair. Um, but why did you guys? Well, Chris is also 10 years younger than David. Well, I mean, David looks fantastic. I mean, I would—I I thought they were in the same age, but I mean, what? How did you guys? Why did you need to make this? Because a film is an undertaking. I mean, it's—it's it's a massive undertaking. It's a lot of work. It costs money. It's a lot of emotional pain. Like just to like, oh my gosh, the producer, the PA, the camera, the lights, this, and then now you're in this thing of who's going to watch it. Um, you have to sit in these awkward situations where, what do I know about film? And I'm evaluating a beautiful piece of work as not a, you know, I'm not a critic. I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you what I feel. Why this project? I mean, why dedicate how many thousands of hours I would guess it would take? Why do this?
2: I I guess that's a, yeah, that's a decent question. I really, it's just David emailed me and said, do you want to adapt my book? And I said, sure. That's as, it's really as simple as that. Um, I guess I didn't have anything better to do other than uh work on, the By the way, was that my first months.
0: decent? Was that my first decent question?
1: No, you got a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm teasing yeah. you. I'm teasing you got me. a lot of good ones. But um, um, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a long, a long narrative which which Nick and Rachel can unfold. We have a, a, several mutual friends in LA, and we've been aware of each other's work for a while. And then I forgot how it all Nick can un you know unravel yeah. that story. How yeah, it went right. from a book and within. I mean, I basically I finished the book on Tuesday and Nick was essentially shooting on Wednesday. I mean, it was kind of crazy.
2: Yeah. It's also we shot the movie the same week that Rachel and I were moving across the country. So it was a busy week. Uh, And then I edited the movie the week after we moved into our new house. So um, it was all it's all uh, you. uh, I mean, Scott, you're correct that usually for most productions, um, there's a lot of uh complications with things like producers and whatnot but this was essentially with the exception of david writing the book and rachel writing the screenplay and then the work that the actors did of course it was essentially a one-man band you know i was i produced directed did camera did sound uh did craft services you know (laughs) i i I got the location all that stuff it was it was all just me doing it so um So that really simplifies things, the fact that I can sort of do that very DIY, literally DIY type of stuff. And and this project was designed to be able to be done that way. And also to answer your your first question as to why not cast David playing David? um, Well, the answer is because of the the pandemic. You know, we talked about it and um, we had talked about. The, I cast Ashley to play the interviewer. That was uh, uh, one of the first decisions that was made. And um, one of the things we had talked about was the possibility of going up to Seattle from L.A. and having uh, David play himself in it. And, and that actually we still have kind of I don't think we've 100 percent closed the books on the possibility of shooting another version of it. I had this idea where I wanted to do a fiction version that cast actors and then uh, I would call it a documentary version where I had David play himself and have Rachel play the person asking the questions and then submit them to the same festival, but one version as a fiction and one version as a documentary and see which version does better. Uh, I still really like that idea. I don't know if we'll actually do it, but um, but yeah, So so that's a totally fair question, but but yeah, but David was, you know, David's sixty-four. He's in that that just on the cusp of that age group that the coronavirus really likes to kill. And so uh, you know, he was reluctant to do a lot of traveling or a lot of um, you know, unnecessary interacting with um, you know, just rando people from LA flying up uh to Seattle. But
1: yeah. And yeah, that we were <clears throat> But, I mean, I was just going to bring out this whole – this sort of the role of luck or chance or fate and being smart enough to take advantage of it. Sort of like when we did the I Think You're Totally Wrong film with with Caleb and James Franco that (coughs) – excuse me – that we started out trying to film the book pretty much as is. And the first day of shooting was kind of boring. And then about 20 minutes into the film, like an actual real-life, real-time argument – broke out between Caleb and Franco and me and Franco was smart enough to keep the cameras rolling. And that became the movie. What was the argument about? Well, the argument was about Caleb kept on mentioning a relative of his who I think had been a stripper at one point. And he kept on threatening that she would come up from LA to Lake Arrowhead and sort of show up in the film and sort of throw some new energy into this very male space. And we kept on saying to Caleb, like Caleb, either have her show up or not. It's no big deal, but you're endlessly referring to her. Just have her come here and we'll just talk or not. I just think
0: on any film site, just get strippers in. I mean, it's not going to be bad. <laughs> I mean, there's security. If things go poorly, I mean, it's right. it's not going to be terrible if you get a I know stories.
1: what you mean. So Caleb kept on alluding to her showing up and that, and Franco and I just said, you know, that's fine. It's no big deal. It'll just be interesting or not. And then he thought Franco and I had conspired to kind of tag team against him, and that we thought he was having back channel communications with her to tell her not to come. And anyway, it's kind of a boring thing and sort of hackneyed. But there was some real energy and tension between the three of us, as I felt guilty about haranguing Caleb and. Franco kind of called me out for having being interested in, in theoretical rather than actual risk. And I accused Franco of the same, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, the abstract issues in the book became nicely materialized in the film as we actually argued about a real life question of life and art. I, th- I kind of liked the film, the way it leaned into the serendipity of this random argument. <clears throat> and that argument plays out throughout the whole film. There's kind of a wonderful PS to it. At the end, we found out that she really wanted to be in the film. And that it was like, great, thanks for telling us now, five years too late. And so um, in the same way, I think, Nick, you know, that we were just going to shoot it in a regular way, maybe at someone's house or something. But then Nick rented, is that what you call it? You know, rented an Airbnb for a day, I think, and that it had all this Christmas
0: milieu to it. A yeah, with, the with the Christmas light blinking off and on in the tree, you know, I thought as a secular Jew, you, the actor, I mean, playing you, I mean, sits there as a secular Jew with Christmas lights, which I found intriguing. I mean...
1: Right. And I don't know how Jewish, I guess in the film that we mentioned he's Jewish, but in any way, <clears throat> the film now has a strong COVID context, it has a strong Christmas 2020 context, and there's something, I mean, I find the film... You know, quite harrowing. I've I've only watched it a couple of times because it's so, you know, it's pretty existentially tough, you know, I find. And it's, you know, it's, I would argue he's somewhat of a fictional character, but it's not unrelated to me. I mean, quite a few of the questions relate to at least some version of my life. So, anyway, in rather the way that Franco took advantage of the argument that broke out between us, in kind of a similar way, Nick was. Alert to the environment that oh my goodness this Christmas space really deepens the melancholy and existential oomph of the the movie you know and that the film is about you know <clears throat> despair and redemption and salvation and you know the whole question is to what degree at the end there's at least a glimmer you know that we think we found about the right thing but anyway I don't know I just wanted to mention that it's kind of a fascinating idea of of collaborative art, the way that serendipity can and often does play some huge role. And Nick was terribly intuitive. And I think it really transforms the project. I can't even imagine it without the Christmas context. The moment it starts with that plinking piano and this Christmas song, and uh, Ashley and Nick are kind of of walking around each other then Chris enters the stage. I mean, it's an extraordinary opening and extraordinary ending and that whole Christmas thing. I mean, it's part of put some pressure on us now to get the movie out because, you know, But the
0: extra, I think the extraordinariness though, is the understatement of everything. I mean, it, it, this, that first thing I noticed were the masks, right. And people it's are walking just in there. It's just there. Are, oh, are yeah. we six feet away? Are we this? Are we, that? and, and that was incredibly Compelling because it's like it's like if you're writing a play during the plague or something, you know, in Europe. It's like so I mean, moving.
1: I know it's so it, beautiful. I
0: mean, it, it is. I mean, that was. um Yeah, I mean, that was really gut wrenching. Can I? I can I, I? Can I say something too, though, about the misogyny thing? Is it really difficult? I mean, and I would guess we're all people of the left. I mean, uh politically. I mean, not that that matters. If it, you know, we weren't, it'd be fine. But, but we're all, we all locate sociopolitically center left. Is, is it hard to be an artist today on the left? Because it, it's interesting that the, the Republicans used to be the censorious ones, right? Like, and then you get Trump and everything. And now it's the left is the censorious crowd. So, uh, it, and again, I, 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 it shocks me that people saw this film as, or somebody saw this film was misogynist. I just thought it was human, but is that the risk you make, you take making art on the left today?
2: Well, I think that it's funny and this might be all I have to say about it because I try not to care about things of this sort. Um, like I don't think of myself as being a political artist in any way, but um, but no, I, I think that the sort of the absurdity of it is wrapped up in that criticism that says, Well, your movie
1: would have been more feminist if it hadn't had any women in it. (laughs) That's a great point. I know. It's so ridiculous. It's so, you cannot win for losing. I know. Because we got that criticism of the Caleb David movie is like, where are the women? Well, it's about two guys. You know, I don't know what to say. It's crazy. I know. But I think Scott's question, Scott and I are obsessed with that question. And we have done this 10-hour conversation about it. It's part of this other film I'm working on. And we're obsessed with this whole question. And, um, yeah, I don't know what to say other than, you know.
0: Do you worry about getting blackballed? Like, oh, my gosh. Like, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get canceled. You got, you, I mean, you're. Not for un- then, I mean, my
1: God. I think that was such a one-off. Reaction. I mean, I've gotten you know a hundred reactions from friends. Some people like it, some people don't. Some people find it funny. Some people find it too bleak. But some people like the book better. Some people like the movie better. But it's like this was a totally one-off reaction, which was totally self-portrait in a convex mirror. This is someone speaking to herself and misreading the film through a really. uh,
0: But her, but herself is not. But she's not a minority. I mean, I. I mean, she's not a marginal. Um, you know, she's not a conspiracy theorist. She's not, I mean, I would guess there's a lot of people that, again, I look at the film, I don't, I didn't think about that at all. I mean, I thought, again, it was a very emotional experience watching it. Like it was great. I mean, it was, and when I say that, I mean, in the best sense, like it, it I, um, and I'm probably not a fair reviewer in the sense of, cause I know you, David, like, cause most people won't know you, but like I felt so many emotional reactions like my emotions were all over the place, and I credit that to you. Uh, I think filming. that Rachel's
1: answer. Is that, it, 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 I, 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 I think you know, that Rachel's.
0: I, oh, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I just, I just thought that Rachel summarized it awfully well. Like the moment you have a character who's one dimensional, like you know, it's like at the moment, you know, every black character in a movie has to be sweetness and light, or every. Female character or every gay character. I mean, maybe it's a function of where we are in the culture now. But the moment you are doing that, you're turning them into one-dimensional characters, which are just as dehumanizing in a way as the earlier iteration. That's what I try to do in my Marshawn Lynch movie is to show him to be a three-dimensional person. But anyway, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. But I mean, of all films to worry about, I mean, my goodness, it just seems to me a really obviously that's a really oblique a really crazy take on the film i think one other
2: thing that i would also throw in is just you know realistically speaking is i'm frankly not on anyone's radar so you know you have to you have to have something in order to cancel it right like uh my movie nick Nick, 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 Nick,
0: nick someone will find you and cancel you.
2: <laughs> I know, but I've made, I've made much. Oh, more someone
0: offensive. will find you.
2: I've made, I've made way more offensive movies in the past. Uh, and you know, nobody's come. It's you know, the same thing uh, you know, a, a friend of mine who's also a filmmaker pointed out that he, uh, so I have a friend who he made he made this movie that kind of made a splash a, a number of years ago where he he took the novel First Blood that the first Rambo movie had been based on and he wrote an original adaptation of it and he shot the whole thing in his studio apartment and he played every character in it and uh he did this without the rights to the to the book um you know obviously whoever made The movie First Blood owns the rights to that. Uh, And and he he, it got reviewed in The New York Times. It got written about everywhere. uh, And he never got in any trouble at all. The author of the book uh, said that he loved the movie. And he, he got and basically what he said was, you know, I'm so small. Nobody, nobody cares. Like nobody cares to come after me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel too. I guess I uh, the famous last words, but I'm just not too worried about
1: it. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we're trying to at, other things we could talk about. I mean, we got the movie, the book, Christmas, COVID, um, trying to think of where else to take this. Um, yeah.
0: I mean, I, I, there's lots of stuff we could talk about. The The other thing I like, I found um, from the film, it's interesting because, you know, I've been watching, this is a, like so silly, but I, I I was, I got invited to a group or something on Facebook called Costanzagrams. And I've been watching all these Seinfeld, like, it's just basically 30 second clips. And I remembered how brilliant Seinfeld was, that show. I mean, it was just every episode, especially to be, to be brilliant on network TV is really hard. Your choice of a, a 30, 29, I think the film was twenty nine twenty two or something. Twenty nine thirty two. Like, I mean, did you have that limit in your mind when you were thinking of the film, or or were you? Yes. Okay.
2: No. When Rachel and I choo-
0: first, how do you choose that though? Twenty nine.
2: First 32. started talking about it. Well, so actually, David was he he wasn't insistent in any way. He basically was like, well, however you want to do it, I'm on board. But his preference would have been at the beginning for it to have ended up being a feature. Um, and my instinct from the beginning was, and I talked about it in television terms. It was, I was like, I feel like this has to be the, the length is going to be between 22 minutes and 45 minutes, which is essentially the length of a network, uh, half hour show or a network hour long show without, with the commercials taken out. Um, and it, it wasn't obviously it wasn't because i thought oh we're going to get this on television um it was just that was the hunch that i had that that was going to be the window where the correct length of the adaptation of the book should land and then basically handed it to right Ra- handed the book to Rachel and she she just wrote the script that she felt was the right script and it ended up being exactly 22 pages and then in Putting the whole thing together it ended up being a, almost exactly thirty minutes long so. and you
0: probably couldn't do a film with without dialogue as a monologue longer than that right i mean if if i mean you could do another a sequel where there's a dialogue or something and maybe that's the next book i mean maybe that's the thing where there's you go back to the last interview and and he speaks um or there's a sequel or maybe there's some kind of but that would be different because you could do ninety minutes um but but it would be hard to do 90 minutes when you're looking at this guy just suffering i mean and 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 that i mean it, I,
2: it, well i'm also i've always been in my in my filmmaking very uninterested in like doing the right thing you know like i'm not trying to make i have i think i only have one movie that's like actually properly feature length and that one i thought i was making a short documentary and then when i edited it it ended up being like 94 minutes long excuse me um but so that was an exception most of my movies are in these weird problematic lengths like i've made movies that are 45 minutes long Uh, this one's 30 minutes long which is like too long for a short film not long enough for a feature uh I've made, I made a movie that was 25 hours long. Uh, I'm working on a documentary currently that's probably going to be about seven hours long when it's done. And, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm interested in weird lengths that are never going to be able to be sold to anybody basically. So um yeah.
0: I mean, Rachel, I'm sure you're like, you love that financial plan for the marriage. like.
2: Well,
0: I have a day job too, so Yeah, but there
2: you
3: go. I mean, right, we've 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 both got day jobs. Nick used to say that my screenwriting was his retirement plan, um, and then hasn't said it in a while. So 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 maybe that's a reflection. So of what, yeah,
0: what if like I want to see the film where the Shields character goes to coffee or has a drink with her? I mean, did you did you think that like, or is that a possibility? Could
1: I think could. the
2: sequel would be uh, the David character just talking on the phone to somebody that you don't hear afterwards. And he's just like, basically, he just for 30 minutes says like, oh my God, this interview, you wouldn't believe it. Like she wouldn't shut up, you know, and he just talks about her for 30
0: minutes. That could be One me, year. David. David, that could be me. You you mean I could talk to you? You could call me. It's not a bad idea. And I think,
1: you know, that we kept on asking ourselves why doesn't the david character talk i mean partly is you know we imply you know i don't know it's possible he had such a horrendous stutter that he almost literally prefers not to talk the way i mean as a child i could hardly talk so that was there was that
0: idea and then there's what was that like as a kid i mean did it feel like imprisonment I mean,
1: it was pretty extreme. I mean, it was very dramatic and it's, it's hard to emphasize how much it formed my personality. It was, I mean, it was quite intense. And, you know, I mean, there, it's all on a continuum. There were people who had had far worse speech impediments than I, I did and people who were far, 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 far worse and far better. But I mean, it was a <clears throat> dramatic part of my childhood, you know, and you know, it's been a lifelong thing to gain increasing control over it. But um, I'm trying to think of what to say other than it's, you know, the indelible die cast upon my soul. I mean, it just is who I am. I mean, it's, it's hard to even imagine myself without that as the triggering mechanism of my entire creative life and my psychic life. I mean, it's a dramatic thing. There are obviously our worst fates in the world, you know, whatever. But
0: Not for someone with your soul, though. I mean, there aren't worse things in the world. I mean, if you have an expressive soul,
1: right? I mean, uh,
0: and 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 also, I'm looking at your wall and you have, you know, I'm thinking about the Lynch movie, which I love. And and I'm sure, I mean, if any of our listeners haven't seen it, I mean, Lynch of History is, I mean, it's just a, a fantastic film. And but but you're drawn to Lynch for a reason, he's silent, right? He's not loquacious. I mean, these, but you are loquacious. I mean, you're this guy that um, I I just know you can't shut up. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, and it's part of what I love about you. Like as a person, I mean, you're really interesting. You ask interesting questions, you offer interesting insight on anything in life. And yet you also have this, the, 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 this thing of the, the, the sound of silence, man, you know it and silence, not just, Silence from your own soul, where you can't get words out of your larynx. Mm -hmm. That sounds awful.
1: Yeah, this is getting very therapy-y. But um, yeah, I mean, it's all all true. I mean, like, you know, the Salinger book that I I co-wrote is about his silence. And there's a companion documentary film. Obviously, Lynch of History is about that. This novel I wrote, Dead Languages, is about growing up with a speech impediment. I'm trying to think of anything else, I—I t- I mean, almost every book, even a book of mine like *Remote* is partly about stuttering, um, and it's a—it's tr- definitely a trace element in almost everything I write. I mean, I'm trying to think of what to say without making it sort of melodramatic, but I mean, I think it- that I—I I kind of have a,
2: a based on where this is going. I feel like this is a good segue to uh, offer another little skeleton key for this project, which is uh, that. Rachel is uh, connected with the Quakers, uh, the Religious Society of Friends, who famously just sit in silence as a group. And that, along with um, David's childhood and adolescent stuttering, was those were things that we talked a lot about uh, with the actors. Like, I I had long talks with them about Quakerism, silence, um, you know, John Cage and uh, stuttering and just the difficulty of communication. You know, we talked about the possibilities in all of those things and how silence in and of itself can be a metaphor for, you know, not any one specific thing. And that that's sort of where we located the potential power of the movie was in that question of what is this silence? What does this silence mean? And, Never quite answering that question, but offering a lot of possible answers to that question
0: and and the thing in Quakerism right is you sit in silence until you get the light like you can talk, but you have to have inspiration so there's not so you could sit in a whole Quaker meeting without anyone talking or you got four people talking if they have the light but there's by the way, I want to say something autobiographical, which is probably irrelevant, but um. I had a speech impediment as a kid that I don't remember. And my Aunt Gail, um, who was a really talented fourth grade teacher, took me out a few times. This is like, I'm like four or five years old or something. And she figured out that someone just needed to listen to me. And it stopped. Like it, She just said, sweetheart, tell me everything that's in your heart right now. Everything that's in your head. Everything that's, just talk. And it stopped. And I, I think I, I just had a floodgate. And I wonder how much... And David, I don't know if this is your experience with stuttering. How how much is just an inspiration that got clogged and y- y- you can't get it out? Um, and then you figure out a way, you figure out a delivery system that can get it out.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really beautiful, that story of your aunt and, you know, just the you wanting to speak. I mean, I can talk about it. I'm happy to, but I I, I want to ask, ask Rachel if she's still... Still practices Quaker sitting at all, or no? Ah,
3: uh, ooh, um, it's complicated. uh I had some weird stuff go. The Quakers are I love 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 Quaker meetings, but the thing about it is that it's just completely decentralized. The like authority, there's no pastor or anything, so you're all doing it yourselves. Like the, the business of, of um, keeping the, you know, the meeting together is all being done um, by individual members of the meeting. So when you join a meeting, there's all this pressure to like be on committees and the committees just multiply like stuff that does not need to be done. Like here's our house committee for watering the plants or whatever. Like, it's just like, it it doesn't matter. And I got kind of sucked in to that and went through what a lot of Quakers go through, which is like Quaker burnout, where you're just like, no, I'm done with Quakers I'm, I'm cutting the cord. But um, I I also the other thing is that the pandemic kind of made it a little odd, uh, complicated our relationship with the Quaker meeting, because sitting in silence over Zoom is not as fun as sitting in silence in a room with other people. It just, for me, did not feel connected at all, especially because everyone's microphone would be on mute. And for me, such a part of sitting in silence is listening to this sort of shared silence together. Um, so yeah, haven't haven't done it with a group for months. Um, I, I think I did it myself at one point when I was just having very, I have like, intermittent insomnia and was having like really, really horrible fits of anxiety when I started the day job um, that I have now um, and just could not sleep at all and tried, tried sitting in silence to see if that lessened the anxiety. And it did, it like fully worked like gangbusters. Um, and, and then ridiculously have not, uh, have not attempted it again since then. That was uh, maybe a month ago. Um, but yeah, I, I I wouldn't say there's a there's not we're in the middle of nowhere. So there's not really a um, Kirksville Quaker meeting. Um, there is one about an hour's drive away from us hour and a half drive away that Nick and I were like, Oh, that could be a fun day trip. But it's also far enough away that we're not going to get super sucked in to the sort of day to day business of the of the meeting. Um, and, uh, and that that might be a nice relationship, uh, or a nice place to be. Um, yeah,
1: Just curious. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, it does speak to silence and stuttering. But yeah, I mean, I don't want, I mean, we can turn this into a whole stuttering thing, which is fine. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. It interests me a lot. I'm trying to think of what to say relatively briefly other than, you know, I mean, one can attach all sorts of metaphysical meanings to it, as I tend to. But on some level, stuttering is this really local phenomenon. That is to say, you know, there was a good book written a long time ago by Gerald Jonas called The Disorder of Many Theories about Stuttering that, you know, it goes back at least 3,000 years, you know, to ancient, the beginnings of of ancient human civilization, but nobody's really ever explained it. Is it biological? Is it psychological? Is it psychosomatic? I mean, my father had what I would call a kind of stammer. He, he he definitely didn't have a stutter per se, but he definitely spoke in a rather halting way, which is different from a stutter. And I think on some, you know, stuttering definitely, definitely, definitely runs in family. So there's a sense in which maybe I somehow picked up a little bit of his speech rhythms and that I grew up in a very, very kind of hyperverbal family in which... My mother and sister were hyperverbal, and my and my father and I were sort of less silver-tongued, so there was that. And then I think what's fascinating about stuttering, too, is the moment you start to try to not stutter, you're stuttering. Like, it's this powerful thing. Like, the moment you're trying to avoid stuttering, the stuttering has begun. So I've learned, you know, I've been in... You know, speech therapy for many, many years. I'm not in speech therapy now and haven't been for a very long time, but I've just learned all sorts of very simple techniques. I mean, even in the course of this podcast, I've used those techniques hundreds of times. Just I've just learned how to talk in this very, very boring way. So, Like, on some level, it's just very interesting, like, in terms of everything it speaks about me. But in some level, stuttering isn't just like, oh, gee, I just wanted someone to listen. It's not as philosophical as that. Like, on some level, I've learned how to speak wrong. And then it just starts to multiply upon itself like anything, you know, like, I don't know what. And so, um, and then, of course, it develops a corrosive quality where... Anyway, I mean, it seems slightly off topic, but I'm happy to talk about it. I'm not particularly shy about it. And I think sort of, of like alcoholism that, you know, I think a part of the cure is just saying, hey, I have a stutter. It's no big deal. Yeah. And I've, I kind of own it I, for a long time when I gave readings and my stutter was considerably more dramatic. I would say, hey, I just want to say I stutter. I'm not particularly nervous, but I'm just something I do. So it's no big deal. And that seemed to give people a little bit of relaxation. I feel like I have sufficient control of my speech now that I don't even even do that. But a big part of the cure is sort of owning the issue. And I think, you know, I've written about it a lot. I'm fine talking about it and just sort of owning that human imperfection is a big part of what I've learned from it. But I'm happy to talk about it some more, but. Anyway.
0: It's interesting that we even use the word human imperfection, right? Because is, is it an imperfection? It's just because when you evaluate communication styles, they're in normative, cultural, linguistic stories. And so why is it imperfection? I mean, no, it might be advantageous to overcome it, but is it an imperfection or not? I mean, how do we how do we weight something like imperfection?
1: Right. I mean, I, re- I remember this friend of mine said, you know, it's fine that you stutter, that you speak so quickly, which, which I don't anymore. I've, I've learned to speak much more slowly as a form of fluency because, you know, it's no big deal. So that you stutter a bit here, but then you speak fast there and an all even though sort of a cute take on it. But, you know, I couldn't imagine being a writer without it. Like I, I remember being a kid and thank God, I wish I, I didn't stutter. Everything would be, quote, perfect without, which is absurd. You know, you'd still have just human issues. But, the, you know, I couldn't imagine being i don't know i can't even imagine who i'd be if i had had such a severe speech problem throughout my entire life.
0: And, and you make a film with two talented filmmakers where you can't talk it's pretty
1: wild i mean it's something right. I we call back, yeah i know what you mean and then the lynch film Salinger film my novel the language it's obviously like you know i was people say what do you write about i would say i always write about the difficult beauty of human communication. Like that's all I'm interested in. And this film and this book are definitely a part of that.
0: David, you're a great communicator though. That's what's interesting. Like in print, in conversation, you're a really good communicator. I mean, I mean, is that, has that been a goal? Like of, is that the kind of, uh, is that the brass ring at the carousel to be a great communicator? Because you're good at it.
1: Dang. I mean, I don't know what to say other than, no, I'm not. No, I'm, I think, um, I know what you mean. I do hugely care about human conversation. Like, I, I really, really care if people can listen to each other. Like, I find it odd when people, and maybe I'm falling into a bit of a monologue here, but, you know, like, I really hate when people either, just ask you a bunch of questions or all they do is talk to I me. Mean, there's a very delicate dialectic and human conversation where you, that you carry your part of the conversation and you, you allow and encourage the other person to carry his or her part of the conversation. Like it's all this human energy that I, I really care about greatly and partly as a result, I think, of that childhood stutter stuff. So that, yeah, I mean, I care about it hugely and it's all, you know, trying to think what to say, but yeah, I mean, I've tried to learn, how to talk. And then I really, I I think as a stutter, I really focused in on how people talk and how people don't talk and how they don't listen. And, you know, I flatter myself to think I'm a good listener. I I like to hear what people say. I like them to hear what I say. So, yeah, I mean, that's a nice way to say that it is a bit of the brass ring. Uh, I think that is something I care about, obviously.
2: David, I've read, you know, a decent number of your books by this point. And I think that, you know, that's an idea that's definitely there and that, you know, presents itself from book to book to book is like this fascination with, you know, uh, like classical Greek drama and the idea of the tragic flaw. And, you know, there's that that one quote that you've used in probably three or four books about um, Bill Clinton would have been a great president if it were only just for and then you s- interrupt and say no 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 there is no if only or but if only in human nature you know it's the things that are your deepest flaws or the things that caused your greatest insecurity or your greatest trauma or whatever are the reason for your greatest potentialities i think that's that's sort of a central idea in you know almost all of your books and the, the obvious leap for me to your character as an autobiographical writer is, yeah, the flawed communication leads to this overcorrection in which you want to dominate language. You know, you want to prove that you're not at this, this and you're not at the mercy of this thing that defined you and, you know, caused some trauma in your childhood or whatever.
1: No, that's beautiful. I mean, I always go to... I mean, it's this very powerful, and I, you know, I agree that is my big metaphor, the wound in the bow. And during the rest of the podcast, we're definitely going to find out everyone else's deepest, darkest wound. That's coming up quite soon. But, um, um, you know, when I was a graduate student at Iowa, you know, I went, you know, I, I think I've talked about this in more than one book, but, you know, where, you know, on the one hand, I was going to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which supposedly this, you know, well-known graduate writing program, which when I was there it was really not, not a very impressive place at all, but you know, it was like this house of language. And then I would cross this, this little bridge. I think it was across the Iowa river, just a couple blocks away to the Iowa speech and hearing clinic in which I was using language at a very remedial level, trying to, you know, I was in speech therapy there for five consecutive years. You know, it was the best thing I learned in Iowa city by far was just, to gain increasing control over my speech. I mean, that was it. That was the whole thing for me. Like six blocks away, here's this one house, this five-story brick building in which I was trying to use language well. And then a few blocks away, this other five-story brick building in which I was trying to say, you know, the cat jumped over the, the moon and I was having trouble saying that because I couldn't talk. I mean, that's my whole life or was. Like, that's it. These two five...
0: Isn't that everyone's life though?
1: How so? That's interesting.
0: Everyone has primal wounds. I mean, not related to stuttering or this, but everyone has these self defeating narratives. Right. And also, probably gifts. And somebody, even if you're the most gifted person in the world, you probably have these self defeating narratives. I would
1: say, especially if you have, if you're. Yeah. I mean, that's the Oliver Sacks thing, which is so beautiful, you know, which is that we build our person, personality around the rock in our garden that you know if you're a brilliant pianist you know it's probably because you know that everyone has like if you're this amazingly great pilot that often you know or whatever you know his books like you know the woman who mistook his or the man who mistook his wife or hat, or like every Oliver Sacks narrative is always how we build these compensatory narratives I mean um but anyway it's fascinating I mean I was sort of kidding but sort of serious I wonder I mean not that everyone has to upload their deepest darkest trauma but I'm just trying to take it because it just I don't want it to be some like David Shields narrative like I don't know I don't know I'm just getting to know each of you guys but I don't know if each of you I mean Scott I know you pretty well you've got your own childhood stuff but do you guys think that's even true for yourselves, that there is you know you don't have to go into it obviously that's but. the
0: only truth that's the only truth i think right i mean would you guys nick rachel would you like we're all driven by our pain
3: if if um, if we're saying just like pain in general sure if we're saying like in terms of like childhood i don't buy into that i i had a super happy childhood i now see the world through just a complete lens of crippling self-doubt and that all has to do with like stuff in my adulthood <laughs> like, so I, I yeah but the, even yeah. even
0: that even the protection of the super that's the pain right like you the pain is you get a great childhood and people protect you and then you get into a more fragile environment
3: i, I don't i don't know that it was necessarily a more fragile environment like i don't think any like i, I would say the first time in my life in which any self-consciousness emerged was probably like this, this long thread of self-consciousness emerged would have probably been when I was an undergraduate in college. And I went to a pretty safe, like it was just small liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere with, you know, a lot of, uh, like-minded people. I didn't, I don't think I felt attacked or anything in any way there. Um, I, I mean, I'll, disclosure, I'm, uh, I'm bipolar. And I feel like that was around the time when I first started having like the, the first like m- significant symptoms that I can like trace probably around, um, like escalating from like college and particularly like grad school onward. So it's probably that's that's probably in the mix. And if that weren't in the mix, then I, I, I would probably be like, I'm a very happy, well-adjusted person. And I I'm sure it'd be a much a much less interesting one um or I, I I hope a much less interesting one otherwise this is all for naught.
1: Right. And though no, that's powerful. I mean, now yeah. it's Nick's turn to overshare. Yes. Yeah, well, mine I have a pretty well, I want to say I
2: have an easy answer for it, but it's also appropriately like more complicated than that because I'm kind of with Rachel where I I don't view this as a negative thing. I don't view it strictly as a trauma, but I recognize it as being sort of uh, the way I think of it as, well I'll just say what it is. So I was raised in a pretty um a pretty religious enclave of evangelical Christianity. What
0: denomination?
2: Uh I was raised in the Assembly of God Church. Oh nice. Yeah. So speaking in tongues, things like that. Uh, the the opposite of stuttering. It's this—it's essentially the same thing, but on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh,
0: did you have the gift? Could you speak or did you fake it? I, sp- I
2: spoke in tongues. Um, I mean, you, whether you, or not I did, you know, people it, that faked it, though. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I I might have been faking it. I don't it, I don't know. I don't know where the line is on what's real and not real when you're speaking in tongues. Um I know that for me, it felt real, but I also know that I had to just sort of start babbling in order. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough to say because uh, I, because that's, that's also where kind of my, I don't view it as a bad thing comes in is that I never had a moment where I stopped believing. I just sort of gradually lost interest. And then whenever I started making movies, um, I started finding that the more I embraced those things that I grew up believing sort of as ideas or subject matter or whatever, um, that kind of the more meaningful the work became for me. And so, uh, like, if for instance, I made a movie about a band that was just this obscure punk band from Seattle called Raft of Dead Monkeys. But what was interesting about the band is that they were this really vulgar band that did really outrageous performance art type stuff. And but they everybody in the band almost was an evangelical Christian who had previously been in a Christian punk rock band. And um, so so basically doing that project, I quickly realized that I was going to have to be wrestling with some of these questions that were really important to me when I was 15 years old. But that had stopped being terribly important to me. Like, like, what is the responsibility of a Christian artist uh, when you're in a punk band or something like that? Like, that's not really an important question for me as an adult. But when I was 15, 16 years old and a good Christian kid who was also playing in punk bands and having these arguments with my friends who are also in the band that I also went to church with and things like that. You know, those were really, really important questions to me. And I couldn't as an adult uh, deny the part of my ch- the movie would have been worse if i hadn't treated those questions seriously or or at least been open to the seriousness of those questions if i had just approached it with this cynical ironic kind of i'm better than this and i'm poking at it and i'm laughing at it if that had been my attitude the movie would have been terrible it probably would have performed better <laughs> More people probably would have liked it because the last thing anyone wants to do at a film festival is take evangelical Christians seriously. But, um, uh, but yeah, but for me, it was like, no, I have to get, I have to get a little bit messy with this stuff and kind of like go back into that place where these things were really important to me because that's where I'm going to find anything of value in this, this project. And, and that was kind of an aha moment for me where almost every project that's come After that, in some way, I always kind of find a way to tie it back into these deeply rooted uh, Christian ideas that were are just in the hard wiring of my brain. So, you know, for the very last interview, I look at that movie and it's like, well, this is a movie that's about. uh, Well, and I think almost all of my movies are about there's an argument to be made. It's about this tension between original sin and grace like it's like these are movies about people who live in worlds that are irrevocably fucked but there's this hint of transcendence like they don't necessarily get the transcendence but there's always this sort of suggestion of it and it might just be in the use of music uh at the end of the very last interview you know like he, this music starts playing this guitar plunking starts happening and the the David Shields character gets this faint smile on his face, and then it cuts to black. You know that's that's the hint of uh, of transcendence at the end. You know that's the that's the idea of grace is there.
0: And um, I mean, this is David and I's Every conversation we have, basically, normally, I mean, um, offline. I mean, it, 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 there are these powers. We talk
1: about. I know what you mean.
0: And, and also, he is the one that lit. Like I feel like he's the atheist and I'm the person that still believes in God and believe Jesus really rose from the dead. I I would say that. And he lifts me up. I mean, his Jesus does, or I do. You do. You do. I mean, we have these interesting interactions where I, I find David Shields full of faith. Like that's my experience of Shields. And yeah. And that's the beauty of the end of the film. Like that's the Shields. Uh, I experience and see, I mean, it, it's a man that's full of faith. Um, that is, it a guy who like, it, our friendship is so strange. Uh, we talk about that all the time because we, um, we're both men of the left, but like uh, religiously we're so, we're in such different places. And yet I, yeah, I find, I, I, I find David Shields full of faith. Like he's, he's full of faith. I mean, I don't know what the object of faith is and I don't care. And I don't want to change it. I mean, I, but his faith encourages my faith.
1: Thanks God. That's beautiful. I think, I mean, it's good that, that uh, like, there's that wonderful moment in the movie. I think, you know, there's a few moments where I guess we talked about this earlier, you know, where Chris taps on the table very hard, you know, and that in a way that sets up the ending of the film, that there's immense intensity in him. You know, and in me, I think, I hope, you know, that the, the depth of his despair is, you know, simply the inverse of his passion at the end so that the smile at the end would not have been possible without the intense thrumming by Chris earlier on. I mean, that just sets that up so perfectly and that, you know, there's a sense in which he wouldn't be in such despair if he weren't such a romantic about human connection, I think. So, yeah, I mean, that's all, all beautiful. I mean, (laughs) I I don't know what to say. I think um, anything else we should talk about? um, You know, I, it's cool to hear a little bit of Nick's and Rachel's background as we work on this project, you know, just because uh, as different as we all are, different as our backgrounds are that, you know, you could see this film, whether, you know, some of of Rachel's bipolarity, you know, you could see that in Chris. Some of Assembly of God, you could see that in the movie. I mean, you could see some of my interest in speech.
0: Did, did you guys get pissed at each other at any point in the process creatively? Like, did we there, get what pissed? We get pissed. Were, there, were there any points where like you're like, we can't make the movie work? Um,
1: we were mad when Crispin Glover fell out of the movie. That happened. At one point, he he seemed interested in, in playing me, and that that didn't happen. I was it was totally Nick's fault for writing the wrong yeah. email. That's true. Yeah, I I really insulted him. What did you say? No,
2: no, I didn't insult him.
1: Yeah, But, you know, I think the movie,
0: it, the movie
1: turned out perfectly and beautifully. I don't think, I haven't felt any, I mean, you know, there's always small creative differences, but I'm really enjoying the collaboration so far. These guys can speak on their own. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there hasn't been a major, you know, it's, it's, it's delicate, isn't it? You know, I'm a different generation than these guys. And, you know, I'm primarily a writer. These guys are married. You know, we're 2,000 miles apart. But, you know, I, I do a lot of collaboration at this point a lot in book and film. So, I mean, it's like a relationship in a way. So like you just have to learn to give and take, which of course is your podcast. But (laughs) I mean, from my perspective, I think, you know, I think you want a little tension, a little friction. Everything is perfect. It's probably, people are probably swallowing their thoughts. But I'm really, I don't know. I mean, I'm always happy to learn like, you know, small things, you know, people say, you know, could you not send so many emails (laughs) or could you um, please give us some space to work on it? Or what do you think here? You know, I mean, there's always finding out a rhythm where, you know, but I don't know so far.
2: There's also like uh, to pat myself on the back about collaborating is like, I've gotten good over the years at working with, I was, I guess I'd say, big personalities and part of that came from I used to be a preschool teacher and I I when I then would go from working with well specifically I I worked in the nursery at a preschool and so I would take care of eight babies at a time and then going from there to working with actors would be like oh does he need a snack if he's cranky like you know like I found myself applying those same skills and I think it just really made me kind of a better, um, more empe- em- empathetic person at kind of trying to read people's, just the way they communicate, what their moods are, things like that. And so so working where I'm kind of this bridge between Rachel and David, um, I, it was started off with me talking with David, and then I brought Rachel on as the screenwriter. But I, I, really, I really quickly intuited that if... I wanted to keep David and Rachel separate because I know that I saw that David sent a lot of emails and I knew that that would stress Rachel out with Rachel's pre-existing boundary issues and that she would feel ob- an obligation at every email that David sent. And so I sort of immediately established that I'm just going to be kind of the communication uh, gatekeeper. Yeah. So things like that, you know, I'm, i I'm pretty good at, assessing the situation early on and kind of making a plan and sticking to it uh so that we can kind of mitigate any potential you know i'm trying to look like three weeks ahead as opposed to just like right now where it's like i don't want to start something that's going to result in us all wanting to rip each other's heads off
0: the thing that i'm curious about though is david why do you send so many emails do i do i send you too many emails No, I like your emails. I but I but I am an inbox zero guy. So I file every email. I have a David Shields email folder with several subfolders. I love email. Like I just. But why do you send so many emails? Like what is it in the universe that this media makes you feel? This this communication medium makes you feel anchored in the world or something.
1: I know what you mean. uh, I don't do any social media or any of that. I don't look at any websites or anything. I just, I mean, we're right back to the difficult beauty of human communication. It just feels like, like contact, I guess. I mean, I know what you mean. It's like, I just think of some idea and... Like, hey, Scott, you know, could you send us the new transcript or whatever i mean i I know I could definitely dial it back.
0: I don't know what no, i know. don't I don't mind it at all I mean, but it's funny because I like the phone i I would talk to anyone. No, I hate the phone
1: I, I mean, I don't mind like it's fun to talk with you once or twice a week, Scott, on the phone, but like, yeah, I don't, yeah, maybe that goes back to stuttering or something, but why well, do you know, i just it just feels like contact something about the I have of, a theory about
2: it. Uh, about David's communication and it, based on my limited uh over the past few months but um it also ties in with uh David your your high rate of productivity on film projects and uh book projects it, and what uh, because I'm also a pretty productive person you know and I was actually when we left LA a few weeks ago to move to the Midwest I was kind of doing a reflecting on the five years that I had lived in LA. And I, I was adding up the number of movies that I had made and as well as other things, like I've been writing articles for film websites and things like that. And I was like, I think I've done, it was something like 15 or 20 movies over the past five years. And you know, some of those are really short films, like five minutes long or whatever, but I was like, that's a really, I think, significant amount of work that's been done. So, so I think that I, I might just be projecting my own things on what I'm reading into David, but my theory is that, so if you, if you, I'm going to use ai am going to use a artful metaphor. If you think of a comet going through space, right? And it's got that beautiful tail coming off of it. That tail is actually just all the stuff that's burning off of the comet as it's moving through space. I think that maybe David's work is just that he's figured out a way to turn uh, his himself into the comet that's moving through space and his books and movies and whatever are just the the result of that movement and another result of that movement is these fragmented emails where everything's written in the subject line and there's nothing in the body and it's hard to keep them organized and you might get 20 of them in a row and Randomly game, being CC'd on other ones like it's all just part of the the tail that's burning off of the end of that comet and uh and and yeah and some of those end up being books some of them end up being movies things like that as well uh but but yeah it's all just it's all just the the burn off it's all just part of his process I, is that's my read on it and uh and that's the way that I deal with them when I get twenty emails in a row sometimes like
0: it's, I love the emails It's fascinating
1: I didn't realize it. that it's like I feel like I want to like. Delete. I mean, I want to like. I I love it because it's working. You
2: know, you're you're getting stuff done. That's and that's what that's what really matters. I did make a joke. Uh, David and I have some mutual friends who are also filmmakers. That that I think they were the ones who first put him on to my work. But my joke with them was that that uh, that they were kind of treating David as a curse that they couldn't get rid of unless if they put him onto somebody else. So it's like a, I was like, is, and then is it just that like when you he's start, a blessing, man. he's
0: a blessing. He's a blessing, man. I mean, jeez, collaborating
2: with David, you're stuck with him until you find somebody else to pass him off onto. That was the joke that I made to them. Uh, and uh, hey,
0: David, I'm never passing you off.
2: Yeah. But um yeah. well David just get suspicious if I ever start saying, Oh, David, you should meet this filmmaker friend of mine. Uh
1: that's the- Yeah. I mean, I just like people who get stuff done. Those other guys don't know how to get anything done. So that's you know, I'm fine. They also with- didn't like our movie.
0: What's <laughs>
2: that? They yeah. also didn't like didn't like the very last interview our movies. So yeah,
1: that's their laws,
2: not ours.
0: That was great. Rachel, what do you have to say?
3: about um i mean is are we still on the subject of david's emailing we have an exchange david and i had not spoken until no. uh yesterday um, yeah yeah until yesterday so i uh i don't know that i've got a lot to say but anyway, i can like specific topic have we said it all have yeah. said i mean it i all? can That's definitely
0: i mean because howard you know, stern always and i mean i can definitely david go ahead because howard stern does this thing at the end of interviews he says We've said it all, and it's a, it's a it's a it's basically a baiting kind of thing where he figures out if the guest has anything left to say. Right, and then oftentimes they talk for an hour more. Have we said it all? I mean, I don't think we've said it all.
1: No, I mean, I think you know it's like everything. I feel on the one hand, I feel a little called out on all my emails, but I think I mean on the one hand, it's part of my creative you process. Can
3: email
0: me, David. If you want to email me right now, you could email me.
1: Maybe I will. But, um, you know, it's obvious, I mean, I like Nick's, it's not about the worst metaphor, this sort of creative residue, partly just the sort of creative mania, like I feel like I've ever stopped creating that, you know, the universe will open up into an abyss. So I'm just, it's a kind of manic production. And the email seems like part of this, I don't know what, a verbal environment to kind of support all the creative work or something. Anyway, it's, it's, it's. A less elegant version of what Nick said, but um,
0: but you don't know. you think that was must be what God feels like in the sense of let's say traditional theistic Christian God exists, which who knows? I mean, odds are not great, but I'm still betting on it. Don't you think the only if if God if that God exists, don't you think creation is only a product of, of God's mania? In that, like, why does God quit? Like, I mean, God put something in I mean this is the divine in 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 the arts right like you have to create or you're dying,
1: yeah I mean that's I think that's a good place to end I'm essentially am god that's 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 good but um yeah so yeah I mean yeah I mean I'm a little a little hyper a little hy- hyper verbal and so yeah I, <laughs> I don't know what to say, but um you know I think we've covered a lot of heavy stuff from Woundedness to language to this movie to our overlapping passions to communication. I mean, I don't know. There's no point in doing some false summary of it, but I've I've learned a lot, and I've um, you know, it's fun to get to know these guys a little bit, Nick and Rachel, as we work on this film, and you know, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have any grand summary, but thanks, Scott. I mean, as always and uh, you know i'm trying to think of what to say other than you know bravo i'm you know i think the film is is great i'm terribly grateful for for nick and rachel's work on it and chris and ashley's and you know it's uh a spooky a spooky christmas narrative
0: yeah it's beautiful Thanks. So thanks, friends. Uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, I appreciate, um, and all of the listeners. The link to the film will be in the show notes. Um, just watch it. I mean, it, it's really worth watching. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous film, and um, thank you and for.
2: It's good for your families at Christmas time. So <laughs> gather together and watch it with grandma.
0: Exactly. Know. Well, watch it with your artistic family members. I mean, don't you know not not everybody, but it's a gorgeous film. And thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Oh you're welcome. Thank you, thanks. Scott. Thanks a so lot, well, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.